to welcome Kenton Bryant to the Sub-70 podcast. I would uh, normally introduce the uh, guest with a few uh, victories, major championships, some Ryder Cup uh, experience, something like that. So I'm I'm missing a part of this here, Kenton. So should I introduce you as (laughs) country music recording artist, singer-songwriter? Your song was playing when we, you know, went into this, so they heard a little of you. Like, what's the official title here on this? Man, I guess a pre-COVID country music guy that loves to play golf, and I guess during COVID, no touring. I think it's a part-time really bad golfer, and, uh, you know, I, I do music on, on the side. It's we, pretty interesting right now. And maybe throwing a little hunting. Uh, you know, I like that too, man. It's been – it's hunting time, so I'm trying to – I'm waking up some of these days going, man, I don't know whether – go sit in a deer stand or go play 18 holes or 36 or 54. It, it, it's been, it's been like groundhog day for the past eight months. Yeah. I was going to ask you like, so I'm assuming your life over the last eight, nine months has really changed. No touring, lots of downtime. So are you writing a lot? Like what's, what did your day sort of look like before all this and kind of, you know, with, with not being able to get out on the road and do what you normally do, what's, what's sort of life like now at this point uh, with everything going on? Well, it's it. I'll say the normal schedule for me, um, you know, as a writer and 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 somebody that that tours, uh, you know, usually Monday through Thursday, I get up and you know, you have writing appointments every every single day of the week. So Monday to Thursday, you know, you're writing at eleven o'clock in the morning with different writers here in town, and you know, writing for myself or writing for other artists, and uh, you know, that's that's fun. I love that. And you know, normally Thursday nights you're hopping in. You know, hopping in a van or a bus or something, and you're heading to, you know, different places to play shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and, you know, you come home Sunday. And uh, that's kind of the, the the fun part about it. I love that. It's so busy. It's so, you know, uh, it, it just makes you constantly be doing something. And when COVID happened, I, I think, you know, you and I were actually uh, getting ready to hang. I was going to play in Indianapolis, and I think that's when we had to cancel the first batch of shows. And it just kind of hit so sudden because everybody was like, oh, okay, well, hey, there's this thing. We're probably going to close down for a week. Okay, we'll just cancel a couple shows. Then it's like, oh, now it's going to be two weeks. Now we're closing down the publishing companies. Now the record labels are shutting everything down. And it's just – it literally went out of nowhere, just like everybody else's jobs. But, you know, I went from, you know, the 11 o'clock rights that I had every day in person. People were just going, hey, let's not do that for a while. So – you go from having a full calendar of shows and, and rights to you look at your calendar in April, March, May, you know, um, and going, oh, man, uh, I, don't, I don't have anything on the books. What am I going to do? And uh, fortunately, um, golf was still open here. And, and I've, I've always loved to play golf, and, and that's something I do a lot on the road. Uh, I, I, you know, usually my schedule on the road is I, I get up at 
seven or eight in the morning or, you know, whatever time I feel like I can get up after the show that night before. And I'll just find a golf course. I already have one picked out. And I just, I usually go play 18 every single day on the road. And, uh, you know, I just kind of defaulted to that. So I was just like, well, I guess golf's the only thing I can do. So, man, I, I played more golf this year than I think I ever have in my life. It's, uh, it's been great. I, I think for me, it's been really taking advantage of the opportunity, um, and just going and, and, and doing that. And I've been able to, to, to see some buddies of mine that are normally on the road. Uh, you know, we're both at home going, Hey man, uh, haven't seen you in six months because I'm normally in Omaha and you're in New York city <laughs> every other week or something like that. Um, so I've been catching up with some old friends and, and playing some golf and, and, you know, trying to make the best of it because that's, that's, I guess that's all we can do. But yeah, I mean, doing a little writing here and there, working on a new record and, and hitting sticks, man, that's that's pretty much my life right now. Where do you do most of your playing at? Um, is there a pretty good core group of guys you play with? And with the, the time you've put into it this year, you've definitely seen some improvements. You're sort of getting to that next level of playing on a consistent basis? Yeah, man. Um, you know, I grew up and I played, I guess, competitive golf. I played on the golf team and did the whole thing in high school. And, and I loved it. My dad was a scratch golfer all growing up. And and, uh, you know, I, I always hovered around like five or a six, um, in high school and, and I got to, got to college and I loved playing. Um, and this was probably 10 years ago and, and man, for some reason, you know, life got in the way and all the other stuff. And, and I kind of quit playing, man. I, I got burnt out. Um, I, I got down, you know, like four or five and just, I'm not going to say I got bored with it. I just got to where I was you just not progressing. So I quit for until last year. And I came back into it, and it was just one of those things where I, I got the bug. I went and played with – God, who did I play with that day? Like Riley Green, Jamie Johnson, Randy Hauser. It was like a big group of guys I somehow got into – I got invited to play with. And it was one of those, well, I'm just going to go hit it and see what happens. And this was last June. And, uh, man, I went and had a blast, unfortunately. And now <laughs> – Yeah, there it goes, right? The addiction's back you know, in. Yeah, and it was like, there was some, it'd be like every third shot, and I think I shot like 86 or 87, it was like, oh man, you know, this isn't that bad, like I had a couple of good shots, and then it was on from there, and I started practicing and playing, and, and I went, yeah, I think my first handicap that I got was like 12, 13, and then uh, I think I'm, I am got down to a three uh, this spring, and I think I'm playing a six, I went to a lot harder course, course. I joined uh, Old Natchez Country Club here in town. And uh, which is a cool track, and I uh, joined it, and I bumped up to a six three. So um, it's been fun, man. I've I've really been grinding, and and you know getting some getting some low scores. I've thrown up a couple seventy threes here and there, and uh, you know thrown up a couple eighty ones too. So it's just been a grind. Um, taking some lessons uh, here in town. There's a, a golf pro, a fellow named Ben Pelicani. Uh, he worked under Mike Bender for a long time, and he Ben's great. Uh, he, he's been teaching. Uh, you know, do you know the Brian Bros? Uh, yes. George Bryan, yeah. I think. Yeah, he's been working with George, and uh, he's got. Uh, I'm trying to think, Dawson Armstrong, who's on the Corn Ferry Tour, and some other guys. Ben's just—he's he, a great teacher, and and he was probably the main reason that my handicap went from a 12 to a four, and you know it's been floating low mid or low single digits since. Um, he's just—he's a great teacher, and uh, we kind of got together and worked on the takeaway, <laughs> you know, and then trying to fix the flip and all that other stuff, and. So that's kind of been my year is is uh trying to chase you know go getting down to a one or something like that and it's it's been fun man i you know it's kind of been the 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 anti music for me because it's the only thing I can turn off 
if that makes sense. I, yeah. you know, I can turn music is, is always going as a songwriter. It's a blessing and a curse because you're always writing. You're always working. And golf's the thing for me that, that kind of takes over when I go play golf. I'm, I'm literally thinking, okay, how do I do this? There's I'm not thinking about work, life, anything else. I just go and I play golf. And, and I really like that, man. That, that seems like uh, the getaway for me. Let's talk about the uh, new material that you wrote. You were kind enough to send me over some of the songs. I'm not going to give anything away, but I was extremely impressed. Like, the new music is fantastic. And I'm, I'm not just saying oh, this because you're on the podcast. Like, listen to it. I'm like, next level. Like, this stuff is great. Uh, the process for writing those new songs, did it, does it, do the great ones come quick? Or is all of it a grind? Or can it kind of – is there a process to it? Or does it just sort of some come quick – some come with a lot of work. You know, how did you get to that point? I think you sent me over five songs to get to that new album that you're working on, and, and I'm assuming you have to be really happy with what you've got on the on, on the book so far for this new one coming out. You know, I, I think the answer answer for all that is yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's there's some songs, and, and, and thanks for liking the music, man. I mean, it's, it's it's always kind of a scary thing when you're putting out new songs and you're first sending out the batch of, you know, if it's half the record, you're sending it out kind of a tester to friends. And, you know, this one was an interesting part because he, a lot of it did come quick. There, were, I think I'm trying to think about the songs on the record here. Uh, probably, I think I sent you six, and, and obviously the listener here doesn't have any reference for the new songs, but I would say four out of the six probably came in an hour, hour, you know, a little faster. Um, it's been a different process for this new record. Um, you know, normally, as I said, you're writing, you know, with different guys, you might be writing with, you know, you and I might write a song hypothetically, and then tomorrow I'm going to write with a different guy. And, you know, you just kind of pick the best songs. But with COVID, when I first started thinking I'm going to do a new record, nobody was really writing. So I started writing a lot of the stuff by myself and my process was to get up in the morning at six thirty or seven o'clock. And, you know, if I had a, if I was playing golf, it's actually funny because I was basing everything around my tea time. So, um, I would get up at like six or seven and just write as much as I felt like I could write that day and then just chew on it and play golf. And, uh, which is kind of the nice process because you can rinse and, and not feel like you're thinking about it and come back to it fresh that night or the next morning. And uh, there were some songs I'd get up and finish in an hour, and there's some songs I would get up and, you know, I would work on for two hours, go to my 10 o'clock tea time, play, come back, you know, have dinner, and work on it again at 9 o'clock at night with a fresh mind because I, I felt like golf was the thing I could go and, you know, turn my mind off. That way I could come back and go, okay, I could edit it if it needed editing and uh, and really feel like I was coming at it from, you know, both the listener's standpoint of what I would want to hear and, you know, somebody that, that, you know, is kind of rounding the edges of something. Do you write uh, with an acoustic or a piano, or how do you get sort of the, the progression of chords and keys and stuff that you're doing for the songs? Man, that's it's kind of a weird process sometimes. I feel like there's some songs that I'll, I'll hum a melody in my mind and be like, oh, you know, uh, like just for instance, the song that came on the, the title here, um, you know, way back, uh, you know, me and whiskey go way back. Like I, for some reason just kind of had that. And, and my, my buddy, William Michael Morgan and I sat down and we, we kind of wrote it and, uh, it just happens like that. And you kind of sit down with a guitar and you kind of fumble through some chords and it's all about the vocal melody and the lyric at that point. And, uh, which is the, the cool part for me is I play almost all the record. I play, a, I say almost all the instruments on the record. Uh, I usually Jonathan Singleton and I, my producer, 
we will um, just go in and he plays drums real well and bass real well and he's great he's great at everything but we usually kind of get the track going he'll play the drums and the bass and we'll get some guitars down and and then I'll play the rest of the guitars and the piano and the organ on it. So for me, from the beginning, I'm already thinking about the end, uh, if it's a song for me. So, you know, I'm thinking about, oh, what kind of electric or what kind of, you know, drums or bass or, you know, it's all kind of working at the same time. Um, but it's you, most of the time, I would say it starts with an acoustic. Yeah, and just kind of get the basics down and go put the layers in and the process begins, right? Something, something to the extent, not that I've ever done it, but I have to imagine it's sort of like building blocks where you get the, the sort of core architecture of it, and then you kind of fill it in and make it complete at some point. It's, uh, it's always an interesting process, I'd have to imagine. It's, it's got to be different every single time at some level. There's, you know, we always joke, like, I, it comes from somewhere. All, all the, the magic, whatever magic it is that, that allows you to write songs and play songs and record songs, you know, it, it never happens the same way twice, and I don't know if I ever want to question how it, how it happens. <laughs> you know, we're always just scared that it won't come back, but it's a, it, it's a blessing, man. I really, really love doing what I do, and, and it's just a, it's a fun job, man. I, I get to wake up every morning and go, hey, I want to make something out of nothing and just hope that it rhymes. That's kind of, that's kind of no. my goal, and it's it's uh it, it really really is fun man i I've, i keep telling myself that I, i'm probably the luckiest guy i know i get to i get to write write songs and rhyme something with truck every day and then go play golf it's uh i feel the same way with what we do with sub 70 right creating these new clubs and exactly right like that's my artistic outlet of how are we going to make this perform and do it like i get i get to do this for a living it's crazy right i'm with you on that of having that freedom to sort of to, to, to lay your own train tracks down. It's it's a fun it's it's a great way to go through life. No complaints from my side either. I know exactly where you're coming from on that. Um gonna get into golf in a little bit, but still like interested in the music side of stuff since that's kinda what you do for a living. Uh growing up in Kentucky, how were you exposed to music? Were there people in your family and who played or you know, where did that passion come in and then at what point in your life did you know like I want to do this for a living? Oh man, I, you know, it's one of those things that as a kid, I feel like I was just kind of drawn to it. I mean, my dad, you know, I always tell the story because it's probably the funniest thing that ever happened. And I don't know if my dad, my dad hadn't have gone in 1990 and bought a brand new Martin D28 acoustic guitar. Uh, and my mom almost divorced him over it because they had a brand new baby, me. Um, I don't know if I'd ever played guitar if I'd ever done it because you know my dad I remember some early memories my dad's not a great guitar player but he went and bought bought this guitar and my mom was like oh my god you bought a brand new guitar we have a baby blah 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 and they ended up smoothing it over it's fine but you know I just remember being there and seeing that thing and just being so drawn to it and going oh my gosh like that's really cool and I remember getting it out of the case at five years old and going I have no clue what this does or how to make it work but I want to make it work and uh, I started playing guitar at five, and there are pictures of me holding that big acoustic guitar, and it just swallows me. And I just remember being drawn to it and connected to it and not knowing why. Um, and that's that's been my whole life, man. I've, I've had so many different hobbies and things that I've, I've loved doing, but music's the one thing that always has just felt like, you know, the thing. And uh, that, that guitar my dad bought has been... You know, he gave it to me when I was 16. It was the first guitar I ever played. Uh, funny enough, I, I did the serial numbers on it. 
and it comes out to it was stamped and finalized in the first quarter of 1990 and I was born in March of 1990 so we were probably uh I was born and it was made right around the same time and it's it's been around the world man I played in Prince Edward Island I've played in gosh all over the west coast I've been to Mexico and all the islands and pretty much everywhere with that guitar and it's uh it's been kind of like my brother for gosh my whole life which is kind of cool cool background story and you still play it to you still play it today i'm assuming right i'm I, it's sitting right beside me and i'm yeah. writing a song with it this morning there you go um influences right kentucky's got some some real history in music like how far back did you go for the influences is it is it back to bill monroe you know ricky skaggs dwight yoke i'm like there's sort of a lineage there did you and then the new guys, right? I mean, Stapleton, Sturgill Simpson. Did you have some Kentucky pride, I'm assuming, in that influence that had to be kind of around you growing up a little bit of some real legends coming from your state? You know, it's funny, man. The Kentucky Headhunters, which I don't know if you remember those cats, oh, yeah. but they're, yeah. from my, they're from my hometown. And it was funny. I remember when I was a kid, it's just weird. It's like I remember hearing the Kentucky Headhunters. I was like, that's a scary name for a band. <laughs> and... uh you know, I, I really wasn't into country, country growing up. I, you know, my dad was, he was a seeger and he was into, you know, ACDC and ELO and my mom liked the Beatles and Elton John. And that's, and that's kind of what I grew up with. Uh, I remember when I was six, there's a guy named Johnny Lang. I was really into blues for some odd reason. Yeah. I, I remember being like into Stevie Ray Vaughan and BB King as like an eight and nine year old kid. And that was really weird. Um, but turned out to be great, man. Jimi Hendrix was cool. You know, Jimi Hendrix did stuff that nobody else was doing. He did it really cool. And that's what I wanted to do. But I remember hearing Johnny Lang at, at six, I watched him on Austin city limits and I'll never forget sitting in my living room. And this was the defining moment. I think for me, um, on my career choice, uh, was I remember seeing Johnny and he was, I think he was 16 at the time. And I saw him on Austin city limits. and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. And from then on, man, that's that's the only thing I think I've ever wanted to do. That was the defining moment for me as a as a, as a person. I think I was six year old Kenton watching Johnny Lang play. I think he was playing Wonder This World or something, and going, "Hey, man, that that's my career. I'm done. I, I don't I don't need to do anything else. Can I just skip school? <laughs> you know." And as far as Kentucky goes, uh, you know, I got into of course Stapleton and Sturgill and all those guys are kind of. They came in later, uh, but yes, I, I think there was a, always a draw to be in Kentucky. I, I think when you're from Kentucky, it's you, you you can't escape it. You know, I was into John Mayer for a long time, and, and I loved writing that kind of stuff. And I, but the thing about being from Kentucky, it's kind of like a, a tattoo, man. You you can't scrub it off. There's no way you can make Kentucky sound like L.A. or New York. You always right. sound like a guy from Glasgow, Kentucky, and it, it was kind of neat because as a songwriter that the more I wrote songs, the more I became Kentucky, if that makes any sense. I think you start out further from where you are because you're trying to write like somebody else. And then the more you write songs, you become more of yourself. And that was, that was kind of neat watching that happen. And it's still happening, man. The, the more I write, the more I feel like I get tied to where I came from. Well, and all those influences, I mean, it's got to be a cool background to have where, I mean, cause it's, it's all sort of, mixed into one, right? I mean, what's rock, what's rockabilly, what's country, what's all of it, right? I mean, there's a similarity mm -hmm. still of the backbone of it. So I love the idea of, you know, there's some rock influence, there's some Elton John from Melodies, right? There's there's some Kentucky yep. in there, right? I mean, you can take all of that as a melting pot and sort of put it together and come up with your own style of having, you know, those different influences. 
Um, I think that's kind of what you want anyway, right? I don't think you want to just be kind of in one lane. You want to take it all in that has influenced you, that you like, and say, where can I take from all that information and, and come up with a great song? And, man, uh, speaking of Johnny Lang, that man could play guitar, right? Oh, I So mean, good, man. So yeah. good. And, and I saw Johnny. This is to show how much my mom and dad believed in me and believed in my uh, my safety. When I got my license, you know, you have to wait six months for your, your learner's permit or whatever. And the day I got it done, I remember Johnny Lang was going to be at the Ryman here in Nashville. And I lived an hour and a half away, right? I got on the Internet and I was like, hey, Mom, Johnny Lang is going to be at the Ryman tomorrow. I mean, I had my license a day. And uh, I was like, I want to go. She's like, well, I mean, where can we find tickets? Is there, you know, are there two down there? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, there's one front row. That's it. <laughs> She's like, well. Do you feel like you can do it? I was like, well, hell yeah. So, so I drove as a 16-year-old kid an hour and a half from Glasgow, Kentucky. I've never been outside. I've never driven outside Glasgow, Kentucky. Drove to downtown Nashville and my blue Chevy Blazer. Parked, went to the show, sat front row and watched Johnny Lang play. And, uh, you know, had an absolute blast. And I remember driving home at like 1 o'clock in the morning and be like, this was a bad decision. Why, why am I 16 and driving home at 2 o'clock in the morning? But, uh, you know, my mom and dad were great. And they always let me, you know, spread my wings a little bit, especially on going to see music. So that was uh, something, you know, a crazy part of growing up. How good was that show to see him in the front row, energy, performance? Oh, man, that had to be, for a 16-year-old who loves music, that would be pretty good to see Johnny Lane that up close and personal, and especially at the Ryman, such a historic theater. Yes. I mean, Johnny, again, that's probably my third time seeing him. But, I've, God, man, I saw the Crows in the, at the Ryman, I've, especially, like, between 14 and 17, I saw a bunch of great acts i saw the black crows there i saw oasis do like a theater tour at the ryman i saw johnny lang do an acoustic set and for me man it was like one of those few things like the ryman was a place i was like oh man like every time i walked out of that place i felt like i had a new bag of tricks and uh you know for 16 17 year old kid trying to figure out who the hell they are you know personally and musically that's a great thing man and i would recommend that to anybody that you know, has a kid playing music is, is take them somewhere and let them, let them experience it. Let them soak it in because that's where you build those memories and, and you build that, that, that foundation that, that helps you grow as a musician. I don't know if there's a better concert than the Black Crows in a small historic theater. My favorite band you know, in the world. And, uh, right, those guys in that small of a setting and once it starts, it's like watching magic on stage to me with the, with the brothers playing the vibe of that band that is that is a rock and roll concert right there man that's that's as, as good as it gets yeah man i remember the the part about it that i was just enamored by is steve gorman took probably a 30 minute drum solo i think they all went back there to drink five beers and smoke a bowl <laughs> but they, were, they literally disappeared and i remember looking at my watch and be like damn they have been gone a long time but it was it was a great show, man. I think they had Mark Ford on guitar that time. Yeah. It was just it was it was a great show. And again, you, uh, just trying to soak up whatever the heck that is that that Chris does. Uh, you know, when you're a front man and you're trying to make a show, people listen with their eyes at concerts. And there's nobody better in the world for putting on a show than than Chris Robinson. I've said that you you, you couldn't you can't not watch him. He's he's just he's it's he's a it's a total rock star. You can't not yes. watch him. 
He's got command of that stage, the moves. I mean, he's just – and there's an aura about him. Like, you just – like, that's the guy. He's just – You know, that's the weird thing about music, man. It's like you'd probably hang out with that dude, and he'd be the most boring cat in the world. And then, then you go watch him in concert, and you're like, holy shit. This guy, what, what, what happened? This is not the same guy. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of read their, their – Steve Gorman had the book on the Black Crows, and I read it, and he's actually quite shy. And yeah. when you would put him on stage, he would turn into this different almost person where he turns into a rock star. But they said he's actually, you know, quite shy. He's not a real public person. But yet in the right environment, on the right, you know, on the stage, he turns into, air quotes, Chris Robinson of the Black Crows and one of yeah. the best front men I've ever seen. So, no, it's uh, – oh, that's my band right there. I, I was going to go see him this summer and COVID hit. So hopefully looking like, what, 2022? realistically Man, so i'm holding out I'm who, holding knows? Out. who knows I, i'm just crossing fingers it's before i get old and gray yeah i i miss seeing live music especially like you know close enough to chicago we you know house of blues there's great blues clubs in chicago you know small old theaters um god i miss going down just to see a show i, I really truly miss it so we'll get back there um had a, had another question about you know going to nashville and at some point you're you're just jumping into the deep end of the pool saying I'm going to go do this. And is that a was that tough for you to do or was that like this may this is the right move? And I know it's tough cuz there's talent there. Was the decision tough to say I'm going to go live my dream out and do this or was that the easy part and is the tough part making that happen once you actually move to Nashville? Um I think it's really tough and it doesn't make sense for people to live in a rational world. Um I don't I've never lived in a rational world um, because it's always been a, 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 a crapshoot for me. You know, you learning to play guitar, people always say, well, just have that as a backup. But when you're chasing this and when you actually decide you want to do it, there is no backup. And I'm sure it's the same way, you know, for people to play golf professionally. I'm sure somebody's sitting there listening and they're grinding on mini tours. There's no backup for a dream. If you're chasing a dream and you have a backup plan, you need to move home. Because that's that doesn't work, man. You you can't you can't go out on a ledge knowing that there's a rope tied to you. You know what I mean? You you have to keep pushing and you have to figure out where where the ledge is. Because you know, for me, for most people, even the thought of moving to Nashville to chase a dream is the ledge. There's no past that. I can't leave my town. I can't go somewhere where I don't have a job. I can't go somewhere where I don't have health insurance. That's step one for moving to Nashville because nobody ever made it. Actually, I can't say that. Not very many people make it that don't move to Nashville. Um, you know, you got to move to town. you got to be present to win. And any part of chasing a dream always has to be that way. And, uh, you know, I moved to town, and, dude, I sold an old – I bought an old guitar amp that was worth a little cash, like worth like three grand. Sold it on eBay. I decided I was moving to Nashville. Um, sold it to Nashville. Sold it. Moved with $2,800 to the east side of town which is not exactly the nice part of town and uh i made it work man i had twenty eight hundred dollars and a smile and a few guitars and i moved to town i was playing cover gigs on the weekends i was writing i was going to you know this bar that bar meeting new songwriters going to songwriter rounds hey i like you you have a cool song you want to write tomorrow well i don't have anything else going on let's do it so you just meet these people and and it was just slowly riding my way into where I wanted to be because, you know, that's how it happens, man. You, you know, I didn't have 
you know, this posh place downtown and, and cool friends and all that stuff. I just, I knew that I could write songs and I could do it pretty well. And, and I, I was hoping that that would put me where I wanted to be. And, you know, a couple of years later, I'd, I'd met some people and was writing with, with guys that, that I was always dreaming to write with. And, you know, I landed my publishing deal at Big Machine and 50 Egg Music and, and I had, I guess, probably my favorite writer in the world call me and say, hey, man, I want to write songs with you. And and it uh it, it took off after that. But, you know, I, I think any kind of chasing a dream, you have to be very, very, very comfortable being uncomfortable. And it never changes. You know, I, I've gotten to a point now where, you know, as I said, I, I get to write songs every day and play golf, which is the biggest, coolest thing I could ever ask for and i'm still uncomfortable i still chase that that anxiety because that's the only way it's ever gotten me anywhere that's the only way i've ever you know left the house to be able to do anything is because i was uncomfortable doing it and uh you know writing a new record i'm uncomfortable you know i want to feel like i don't quite know where i'm going but i'm just going to run until i figure out where i am just keep and, grinding uh, it up, right? You just grind it up. You just grind it up because every you day. have to. Yeah, you have yeah. to, man. And, and and that's you know going back to golf, man. I mean, I, and I'm sure any of these guys that that are on the corn farrier or going through Q school or anything like that are probably uncomfortable as hell because you know you got to go out and shoot what sixty one, sixty two to even get thought about. You know, <laughs> you know, and it's just you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, with with Zach Fisher, you know, coming up, staying with us, and talking to him, you know, uh, he was going to play PJ Tour China. He's, uh, you know, trying to Monday in because his his tour basically got canceled from COVID into Corn Ferry Tour, and you know, the you got to have the confidence, but like you said, you have to be. Com- he's and he's exactly saying what you're saying. Of he is completely comfortable driving whatever he's got to do around the world to try to, you know, get into these tournaments because he has that much self-belief and the ability truly is there. He got, you know, he Monday into a PGA Tour event. But sort of the same thing where it's like you, you can tell he is comfortable with the journey and has a lot of self-belief, but it's a constant grind up. It, it sounds, yes. you know, it's, I think your analogy of how similar it could be to professional golf is very, very true. That you got to have confidence. You have to have some, you know, got to have the ability. So, you know, I can't do it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to Monday in. But Zach can. You know, he's played in five PGA Tour events, and like he, I had such respect for him. And same, like instead of anyone kind of chasing that sort of dream, because it's hard. It's a hard grind. It takes a lot of perseverance, a lot of self confidence, a lot of self belief. And like you said, you're probably uncomfortable every time. Uh, you know, he's got to step up to that tee and put up a 64 to get into a Monday, even on a Corn Ferry Tour event. But yet, he's yeah. willing to put himself in those positions, and it's you know. Lately, it's paid off for him with some wins. I love the story of what it kind of takes to get there. Um, but I think there's a lot of parallels between kind of what you did and what, like, you know, pro golf. Uh, most of the stories are not just a, a Jordan Spieth where you get out of college, you got your eight exemptions, and now you're on the PJ Tour. Most of it's a grind up. And I think that's why people love it, too, of got to go earn it, man. You got to go out there and earn you gotta, it. You got to. And, and the tricky part, and nobody tells you this at any point in the career, there is no made it. You're always making it. Because for me, moving to Nashville, if you just told me, hey, man, you know, you get, you're going to get to write with pretty much every big writer. You're going to, you know, play shows, do arenas with Leonard Skinner, and you're going to play with Hank Jr., and you're going to get to hang out with Kit Moore and, and all these cats that you love. And you're going to get to write with Casey Beathard and Jonathan Singleton and all these amazing songwriters. I would say that guy has made it. 
you know, I when agree. I move to town, if, if that happens, that guy has made it, you know, and, and having kind of checked all those boxes, I'll tell you, in my mind, I'm still making it. What's the next, you know, you're always making it. There's no made it. You're just making it. And well, if you get comfortable, even, that edge goes away. The edge goes away. And even, you know, right. you talk about guys like Eric Church or, you know, Kenny Chesney or Keith Urban, you know, Eric just moved up to doing stadiums. That's a scary proposition, man, because you're instead of trying to fill 20,000 seats in an arena, you're now filling 50-something thousand seats in a stadium. That's making it. You know what I mean? And, and I think guys like us, people that, that are chasing a dream, if you don't have that, if you're not trying to make it, you might as well just go hang it up, man, because there's you don't have that edge anymore. I was going to ask you this. This is you know, 99.9999% of people will never – get this feeling what the hell is it like the moment before you're supposed to go in front of 12 or 14,000 people when the curtain's going to open and you're on is it is it fear anxiety fun all of it like what is that feeling like knowing like maybe the first time you do it like you are playing in an arena and every eye is going to be on you when that curtain opens is it is, is it the biggest adrenaline rush ever is it like i said what's that sort of what's going through your head i guess what i'm asking you know, I mean, it's 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 very interesting. I remember my first arena show was with Leonard Skinner at the Van Andel Arena in Grand Rapids, in which I think that's a fourteen thousand seater. And you know, you're all day you're running around, you're just kind of like hanging out. Especially for me, I mean, that was my first time playing an arena, so I was just kind of here, there, everywhere, just kind of checking out. You know, Leonard Skinner putting up the big sets and the stage, and you know, when you're backstage, for me, it's kind of like a I mean, anybody that's that's done anything for a while, like, I know I can play. I know I can sing. I know my set. I know my songs. And coming from a guy that plays clubs, I and mean, we pack four or 500 people in a club, you know, it's asses to elbows in there. And it's like you walk around the corner, and there's a shitload of people right there. You know what I mean? It's like 500 people staring at you. They're with you. But the first time you walk around, like, first off, you don't walk around a corner in an arena. So you, you kind of make your way down the hallways and – you kind of hear the music going, you know, pre-show, and then you get backstage, and then you kind of tell your front of house sound guy, hey, we're ready to go. So the music stops. So it, for me, I remember that feeling of like, okay, everything goes dark. You know, there's lights are on, and then it, the music stops, the lights go black, and the band walks up on stage, and there's like a, you know, it's kind of like a gang plank. You know, it's just kind of that metal plank up, and it's probably, you know, 15 yards, 20 yards up there, and then it's kind of like the back line and the, the, the screen or whatever and you know right around that screen there are you know at, at that point at least 10,000 people there and I remember sitting there and, and the guy looks at me and goes hey man it's your time and uh <laughs> you, you walk up there and it's the weirdest feeling man because you walk around the corner and no matter what anybody tells you there's like this thing and you're as surprised as the people are in the seats because you're going, oh, shit, that is a bunch of people. <laughs> you know, for like a split second, you go, here we are. Like that's it, it's everything you would ever think it would be and more. It's like this adrenaline feeling that you get. But the thing about an arena that nobody ever tells you is you're by yourself. Because it's so big that you lose that 500 people that I was talking about in a club. Like those 500 people, I can count eyeballs. You know what I mean? I mean, you can look to the back of the club and see somebody shooting whiskey right, in an arena, right. you see probably three or 400 people in their seats or whatever, but the rest is just black. 
you know, and it's, it's so interesting because in an arena, like you walk around the corner and that initial shock hits you, but then you kind of go into your own thing. And it's, it's, it's so cool because you, it's the calmest I've ever been on stage. I can tell you, I, I'm, I'm much more scared playing a shitty rock club in Cincinnati in front of 400 people than I am doing 15,000 and in front of like Van Andel arena, because it's interesting. There, there's it's it's black man you don't see anything other than the first three or four rows and you're just at that point you're so dialed in and you got your show and you're kind of doing your thing but man in that in that club that's where it gets real that's where you know that's where you've got like the guy that might throw a beer somebody that might get the fight or some girl gets mad at a guy and throws a drink in his face and you got to stop the song midway because there's a fight or dude we've had some crazy stuff happen and uh but that's it's all part of the same thing, and it's just playing music on stage is the greatest thrill and the greatest blessing uh, I've ever had. I, I love it, man. I, I genuinely say I'm, I'm I've never been one for vices or drugs or anything like that. But man, that if there was one thing that I could get hooked on, it's that. I can, yeah, I imagine, right? It's got to be fun to having people in the palm of your hand. And putting on a show, right? I mean, that's got to be why the Rolling Stones are still doing it at 77 years old and, you know, still going out. It's not the money at this point. Like, it's got to be fun as hell, you know, to, yeah. go play in a, to go play a stadium and have people sing your songs back to you, right? And be a it's rock star. Like, yeah. It's like going out and shooting 59 every time. That's yeah. what it's like, man. How cool is that? Like I said most of us will never get to experience it. It's always, I always was like wondering, like, what's that moment like, you know, and, uh, how cool. How cool you get to do that. Well, let's talk some golf. Um, I was going to ask you, because it's kind of a correlation of being on stage and, and, and being on stage, Corn Ferry Tour, uh, I know you played in some pro-ams, right? So you get to play with some yep. pros. You're out there. Does is, is there nerves on that one, too? Sort of like, oh, shit, here we go. I'm There's people watching. I'm not a professional golfer. I'm a professional musician, but i got to up my game here. And by the way, I'm playing with a tour player. Uh, how yeah. was that experience? How much have you enjoyed it? And was, does, does your experience sort of being in front of people help you with that one? Because, you know, all of a sudden that tee shot gets a little bit scarier when there's people down both sides of the fairway and, and, you know, you're trying to also, you know, play well for your group and, and try to hang with a pro here a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, the one I did, I went, I got asked to go do, um, what was it? The, uh, great Abaco classic. This year, a friend of mine was one of the sponsors for it. And he was like, hey, man, you want to come down and do this pro-am, this Corn Ferry pro-am? I was like, well, hell yeah. So we flew down, and uh, the first day was kind of a low-key low hang. It was uh, our group and uh, and Alex Kang, Danielle's brother. And Alex is such a good dude and a great golfer. And we just kind of, you know, we, we hung around the course. And it was fun, man, because I had never played. You know, I've got a lot of buddies that are, you know, low handicappers. I've got a couple of buddies that are, are decent plus handicappers. And, you know, it's watching them play golf is fun. You know, I love seeing somebody throw up 67 at a, at a good course. But watching Alex play was just a different thing, you know. And people always say, like, oh, man, you know, a scratch golfer, you know, can make it. No, they can't. There's no way in oh, hell. It's Sorry. Night, night and day difference. It's, it's night and day different, dude. And, and that's the thing about, you know, seeing Alex is just, he was such a great ball striker. He was such a great wedge player and the putting man, the putting is really where I noticed the difference um, because it was so calm and cool. There wasn't any like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's this way. Maybe it's no, it was like dead on every single time. And the second day uh, we played with Tommy Ganey and Tommy is uh, first off, a cool dude. 
Tommy is a great guy, man. And, and it was really neat because, you know, he's, he's played on the tour, man, and, and he's kind of done it. And, uh, you know, talk about a guy that absolutely bombs the golf ball. And, you know, we were just kind of – I was kind of watching and just kind of getting tips from him and his caddy. And, you know, I, it was kind of neat because they just – again, man, they do stuff different. I remember being in a bunker – just this terrible bunker shot. And uh, I, I asked Tommy, I was like, hey, dude, I don't mean to be that guy, but I have no clue how to hit this right. And dude, he sat there and went through a bunker shot, actually threw a ball in there and, like, hit a bunker shot. and was like, hey, man, open your club face more. Do this, do that, and, you know. And I got a lesson from getting out of a bunker from Tommy Ganey, which was pretty damn awesome. Um, so, yeah, it was. it's just – it's fun, man. I remember seeing the, the difference between a great – amateur golfer and a, and a tour pro uh, that's just there's a huge difference isn't it fun to watch golf at that level up close where it's just like yeah well, i mean on my best day of you know if i'm shooting 70 at my home club from the middle tees ah, that's a great round jay in my head i'm thinking that and like you watch a tour pro and or a tour player and it could even be you know the difference between corn Ferry tour and pga tour is a you know half a millimeter like it's that close and you're just like i'm not even playing the same game it's that much better. It, the chipping, the putting, the distance, the flight control, it's a different level. It's not like if I, every, like I love watching it and then when I'm done, I'm like, wow, I suck. <laughs> Those guys yeah. are so good. And to see it up close, it just, you know, you appreciate it from television, but when you see it up close and the sound and the way the ball is hit and how good they are from a hundred yards and in, it's ridiculous. And like you said that, you know, most of those guys are anywhere from plus four and a half to plus seven on a handicap it's it's literally a different game than a zero it's it's, it's, it's well and even a plus handicapper i mean I, i've got a couple of buddies that play college golf that i play regularly with and even there there's just a difference between a plus two and a plus whatever you know Tommy Ganey is it's you right. know it'd be like me versus a zero a six versus a zero i feel like it's that much difference but you know going back to it again I, i've got a friend here in town who played PJ Latin America and PJ Canada. And uh, he did a handful of years on that. And just, you know, he's got, he didn't even do it anymore. He's kind of, he quote unquote retired at 28. Um, but he came to my, my club the other day, never played it before. Right. And uh, you're talking about just, uh, he, call, he calls himself just a, a real good amateur. The dude threw up the course record, tied the course record, never played the course 62, you know, and, and it's, at one point, I was—I almost stopped playing. I was just like, hey, man, here's where you need to hit this because this is how the green goes. And, dude, I mean, he had a putt on 18 for Eagle to for the course record 61. Never played the course. And he's a guy that couldn't make it. Or I'm going to say couldn't make it. He's a guy that, that chose not to pursue the right. dream anymore. And it just it really opened my eyes. It's like, okay, he couldn't get through Q school to get on Corn Ferry, and now we've got you know, there's a there's so many levels above that. It's scary. I mean, you always people always ask the question like, "Oh, what would happen if Tour Pro came to play your course?" Well, I can tell you, uh, they're going to shoot real, 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 real level. Well, I had know, that with, I had that with Zach, right? I took Zach out to Kishwaukee Country Club. The tips are 6,400 yards, but it's tight, right? Yeah. He was. We got rained out. He and I told everyone he's going to shoot between 60 and 64. Because I mean, it's so. I mean, every hole is a it's a it's a wedge. And as good as they put it, he was, we were just screwing around on a Sunday afternoon. We got, we didn't finish all the holes out. Um, he was four under through 12, not even really trying, never seen the golf course. So he had to put up another couple birdies. It had been a 64. Yeah. 
exactly. There's the it's difference weird, of your, uh, it's like the easy. I mean, right? It's totally like you, we got. I got to see a legit touring pro at my home golf course, which I just kind of sat and watched. It's it's not even the best player out there couldn't touch him. It's not even close. And the, like the distance off the tee and how good the wedges are. The thing is, it's like it's driver, wedge, eight feet, putt goes in, birdie, next hole. And it's just, and if you missed a green, which it wasn't too many, it's like the short game is so good. It was, it was so cool to see that up close and this, because everyone wants to know, like, what would a tour pro, you know, like you saw, what would a tour pro, legit tour pro shoot at your home golf course? Yeah. Seven, six under all day. If he's hot, he's going to shoot 59 or 60. Yeah. I mean, it really boils down to the putting. Yeah. I mean, at that point, that was, that was the difference with my buddy. I mean, dude, he was just draining him. I mean, the putts that he missed were, an inch outside the cup or, you know, an inch past or lift out. And, you know, that was the difference between, what, 62 and 58 probably mm-hmm. was a handful of putts. It's crazy uh, how, how good those guys are. Yeah, it, it's, it's really great, man. And it just goes to show, I mean, there are so many people that are they're fantastic this game. And it's it's just fun to watch, man. Golf's a fun game. And, and it's it's so neat being able to be a spectator to people that play golf that great. Uh, I know Daly spends John Daly spends a lot of time down in your neck of the woods. Uh, any chance you think you might be able to get to play with him, or have you played with him yet? And kind of get into his group and see that up close. That'd be an experience. Any uh, any connections that might happen on that one in the future? Man, actually, John plays at it at Old Hickory Country Club here in town all the time, barefoot, um, and drinks a handle of Belvedere vodka while he's doing it. Um, you know, I've got I've got a handful of buddies that play with him pretty often. And, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody loves him, man. I, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those deals where anytime Daly goes out to play Oh Hickory, uh, there's always a group playing. There's probably 15 or 20 people. And, you know, my buddy Tyler has probably played with him 15 times. He's like, man, he doesn't give a shit what you shoot. He's a cool ass guy. He's going to play barefoot. He's probably going to shoot 66 and hang out. And, you know, they like him so much there that they built an extra set of tee boxes just for John. They're like it took a course from sixty or something like that. And I think it's like seventy two now daily tee boxes. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't played with him yet. But I mean, that would be, that would be fun, man. Oh, I'd like to see that power. I mean, right, power when he needs it, and his touch is still so good. You know, that's the beautiful part about his golf game is, you know, raw power, but yet great hands. For as far as great he hits hands, it, man, man, just yeah, wedge game, chipping, putting. It's like just phenomenal hands. It's a wonderful combination to have. That'd be cool. Hope you get to do it at some point. You know, if you if you play with them, you'll have to give us a field report of what that day was like. We'll do a mini pod of just my day with John Daly on the golf course. There's got to be some interesting sidebar stories from that one, to say the least. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, so keep me in the loop on that one. We'll definitely hook back up for, a, like I said, a pod just for your day with that. Uh, <laughs> got some quick hitters here for you. We'll let you get Love back to, to, to you know writing some songs and getting some hunting in this time of the year. Um, best golf course you've ever played and what makes that golf course so great from an architectural standpoint? Oh gosh, man. I'm, believe it or not, I I absolutely love golf course architecture. Uh, I've kind of been a person, you know, two years, I really kind of like got into it. I'll go down probably my list of favorites I've played. I've just gotten to play so many cool ones in the past couple years, past year and a half or so. Uh, it, I'll just say Bandon, A, you know, Pacific Dunes, unbelievable. Um, I'm a big core Crenshaw fan, so uh, Trails was probably my favorite of the Bandon courses. I love the way it laid out. I think it was so smart, everything about the course. 
you know, they they had the daunting task of making a course at Bandon that was, you know, that, that could stack up to, you know, hey, the ocean. What would beat the ocean? You know, but I think I think they did it, man. I, I think they made probably my favorite course to play at Bandon. Um, you know, another course in there, I, I, Valhalla. Uh, I played Valhalla a handful of times in Louisville. Um, God, dude, it's so good. Uh, you know, everything about it is just – it's a classic, really, really, really hard golf course. Um, you know, the, the cool thing is there's so much history there. Uh, Shoal Creek, love Shoal Creek. I got some friends down there and I played that. Uh, another, it's a, conveniently, another Nicholas. Um, great golf course. It's classic to me. It's like a classic, like, it's not mountainous. Just great laid out golf holes. Your approach shots have to be good. You can't miss the green because there's so many of those weird little bowls. Um, I'm trying to think what other golf courses I absolutely loved. Uh, there's a course that's probably my favorite ever um, in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It's in Arthur Hills. Uh, it's called Old Stone, the club at Old Stone. And if you guys are ever around Kentucky or want to do a trip, I've I played Valhalla and I've played Old Stone back-to-back uh, multiple times. And I still believe Old Stone could hold any kind of PGA Tour event. Um, probably the hardest opening hole I've ever played in my life. Uh, and it's just, it's all bent grass. And I think they have Zoysia fairways, but, uh, Kentucky bluegrass, it's four inches tall in the rough. Um, it, it makes you go for the risk reward on every tee shot. The putts are so fast. Uh, yeah, it's probably my favorite course and, um, favorite par three, probably, uh, you know, the one abandoned. I think that's just so well laid out. Um, it, it gives you the scenery you're looking for. It's easy enough you can drink a beer and play. And uh, it's just, it's fun, man. A great par three course. Uh, two two courses, three courses that are on your bucket list that you'd want to play. There's got to be a couple that, uh, like, okay, I'm in this part. I'm trying to get on here no matter what I got to do. So is there a couple uh, that are on that hit list for you? Oh, man, you know, Obviously, I think Pine Valley would be in that. You know, everybody's Pine Valley. Everybody's Augusta. Um, you know, Pebble, I'd love to get out and do the Pebble thing. Cypress Point, obviously. I mean, there's so many on those, like, the top courses that I would love to play. And I think the thing for me is I just love great layouts. And, you know, anytime I'm on tour, if, if, if anybody's listening to this and you'd love to come to a show, let's play some golf somewhere. Um, you know, I'm trying to think – I like Florida golf. I would say my favorite golf courses are probably like the Midwestern. I, I want to get out to Dismal and do that. I, I think that would be fun. Um, Whistling Straits. I would say I want to get on Whistling Straits and Aaron Hills. Uh, but, yeah, I, I would say probably my Pine Valley would probably be number one. I think that's on a lot of people's list. That, Augusta. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to play Cypress. Cypress was unbelievably good. But, oh, my God. Yeah, that's man. like the holy grail. If you can get on Augusta. Pine Valley, Cypress. I got, I'm, I'm one third of the way there. Hopefully, I can knock out the other two at some point. But uh, there's usually a reason why those golf courses are rated where they're rated from an architectural standpoint, right? Like yeah. Cypress did not disappoint. If you're talking like top three courses in the world, it's, uh, yeah, something about those great ones. They're usually old. They've got pedigree, and there's a reason they've been rated that high for that long. Uh, there was something in the water during Golden Age architecture where those guys could do something where the golf course just never feels forced. It's just naturally there. I don't know if they didn't have the, you know, they might not have the ability to move as much dirt. 
you know, they kind of had to take what the land gave them. And there's something, there's some beauty in that of where they just let the land sort of dictate the golf course. And we're kind of getting back to that from an architectural standpoint, you know, from what Core Crenshaw does. And, you know, if you come out to Dismal with us, same thing, right? They kind of let the land sort of be, and that's the golf course. And those are the best types. So. Yeah. yeah, there's some there's some good ones out there, man. There's some good there ones. There are, dude. There, there's a Donald. There's actually two Donald Ross here in Nashville. Um, uh, I think Robert Trent Jones did a redesign of Bell Mead, but it's the same thing. I mean, the, every golf hole feels right. It's never forced. Like he, there was a, it, and the thing that always intrigues me, especially about like a Donald Ross, is you go and you can you can play it in 2020. And it's you don't feel like you can overpower the golf course. Even you know, I mean, I'm I'm kind of long as far as hitting the ball, and I still don't feel like I'm you know overpowering the golf course at all. That in Richland too. I mean, both of those courses are so well designed that it's just it's kind of like a great book. It just you can read it over and over and over, and you never get tired of it. Well, you got with a Ross, you got to be so precise with your approach shots. And if you miss the green, the green complexes with the runoffs and the way they're designed, you know, you have to have some finesse. It's, I agree with you. It's like, it's hard to overpower a Ross golf course because precision is sort of needed, especially on your approach shots. Right. Yes. He's got just and great green complexes and chipping areas. And there's so much creativity uh, around the greens and for your approach shots to get in the right position. It's, it's, it's more finesse than power. And a side note, I mean, somebody that came to mind that I actually really love their designs is, is Rob Collins uh, from from King Collins. Uh, you know, it's, they did Sweetens Cove here in town, or out, right outside of Nashville, close to Chattanooga. Same kind of design. It's, it's real funky, and it's real, like, I, I would call it modern design because it, it's so demanding. Everything is demanding shot. You know, Sweetens Cove, I mean, probably a lot of listeners have played it on here, but if, have you played it yet? I have not. We were going to go down last, uh, like last February. We never could get the weather right. Then COVID hit, and we didn't make the trip. But it's on yeah. my list to go see because everyone. I was talking to Danny Woodhead. He was just down there with the No Laying Up guys for uh, like a little tournament thing. He's like, it is. It's like Jason. You would love it. Like you got to go down there and play it. I've heard it's that good. It's it's really good, and it's almost it scares the shit out of you the first time you play because you you hit a great shot and then you watch the ball just kind of disappear into something and then you go there and it's legit a hole you know on the on the green and you're going oh my gosh this is weird but he's there's so many risk reward shots i mean massive green complexes so much undulation uh so many ways that he knows how golfers hit the ball so the thing that that really struck me is a, is a cool thing about like sweet design is rob made the greens where you know, the weaker golfer that's probably going to be playing a slice, he's laid it out where, you know, there's sometimes there's the reward for missing the green right, you know, where, you know, it's not going to penalize that golfer as much versus where the, the better golfer, he's going to be closer to the pin, but if he misses right here, he's hosed. You know what I mean? That's It's just a weird, weird way, and I, I really, really love his mindset when it comes to designing you know, the tee shots for all golfers and the approach shots um, because it makes it where the guy that's just hitting constant greens and regulation isn't just two-putt par and everything. Right. You know, and that's I think that's what kind of modern architecture is where I think the 25 years ago, it's how hard you could make your golf course. And if you gosh, if you're a 15 handicap, you know, you got, you got the crap kicked out of you and you probably don't want to go back to that. I love now how they're trying to bring fun back into golf again, which if you play golden age architecture golf courses, they are fun. You know, Seth Rainer golf courses are fun to play. 
So I like it that they're kind of given a little more width off the tee, given the higher handicap, a little bit more help. I think Core Crenshaw kind of really brought that forward of letting players of all levels enjoy the game. You know, golf's yes. hard enough as it is, right? And it's okay if you have a pretty low score. The course doesn't need to beat the living hell out of you every time you play it. So I know King Collins kind of has that same concept into their designs of they're going to try to make the experience for all levels fun, yet challenging, but not overly, overly difficult. Where it's, yeah, you know, I just mean, kicking the shit out of you every time you get to, you know, every other hole is a bogey. I mean, they don't design them that way. And I love that idea. There's a, a funny story about Valhalla. Um, you know, every time I go play that course, I get my teeth kicked in, um, which is fine. I love it. You know, and it's just, it's so demanding. The course is so demanding every single shot. But there uh, was it, hole number six. Um, I, th- I think it's six. Let's see, one, two, let's be three, four, five. Six. Yeah, hole number six used to be um, about 240 into the fairway. Then you cross the creek. Floyd's Creek, I, th- I think it's called Floyd's Creek, and the green would be you know 120 yards across the uh, across the, the creek. And then when they did the redesign, Nicholas did it. He moved the green another 235 yards over the creek. So you're basically hitting 240, 240, and uh, as a par four. And uh, the members, you know, Nicholas did a, a Q and A, and my my buddies, the member there was there, and uh, it, you know, people were going bitching. They were like, "Hey, Jack, like we love a lot of the holes, but number six, what were you thinking, like?" You, you know, it's, we hit the best drive of our life, 240 yards down the middle, and we got 240 coming into a par four. And Jack looks at the guy and goes, what's your handicap? And uh, the, the member goes, well, I'm a 12. Jack looks at him and goes, you're not supposed to make par. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's I, golf, I, man. I mean, it's so it, hard. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I like what, like I said, like when you look at a core Crenshaw, I, I think golf – People have less time to practice. Everything, everyone's lives are busier. And I truly think there is a push. And like I said, the new, you know, if you look at like what they did up in Sand Valley in Wisconsin, like those golf courses are great. They're wide off the tee. It challenges the good player, but, you know, the higher handicap can still get around there and enjoy the round. I still think you're going to get more of that than I played, you know, Butler National or Hazeltine. And I don't know if I'd want to play those every day. Like it just. You know, they could have a senior U.S. Open at, you know, Butterfield. I'm not about Butterfield. Butterfield's not as hard as uh, Butler National. But at Butler National, you could have a – I don't know if you could have a U.S. Open anymore. I don't know if it's quite long enough. But a senior U.S. Open, you could have it there. You said June 27th you had to have one, and it's June 25th in the summer. That course is set up like having a major championship all the time. I love playing Butler. Like, but I don't know if I'd want to play that every day. It's just you know, hard, right? Hazeltine was the same way. It's like, oh, my God, you know, this thing just beats the living hell out of you. It's great architecture, but I don't know if I want to grind that hard 18 holes, <laughs> you know, every time I'm out there playing golf. There's something, like, I enjoy it every now and then, but I don't know if I'd want that to be my everyday golf course. And I think you're seeing something like what King Collins is doing out in in uh, Nebraska and Homer and, like I said, with the, the popularity of Sweetens. I think that's kind of the new movement of where it's going to be going for, for most clubs. And there will always be those clubs that have that elite status and elite players play out there. But I think people want to just have more fun and put some music on and enjoy it a little bit more. You know, and, and I find myself doing that. That was kind of my big thing joining the club was going, okay, I want to find a place that my handicap travels well. You know, I'm, I was fine with my handicap going because I was playing a lot of just every course in town, you know, wherever I could go. 
And, you know, I was at a 3-4 happy, you know, playing the easier courses. And when I joined the club, my handicap went up like three points. But I can go to I can go to Valhalla and, and play right around my handicap, which is right. really nice. Um, so there's something for me joining a club that plays harder every day because I'm having it. You know, the, the the shots are more demanding, the tee shots are more demanding, the putts are faster. Uh, but you know, you're right, man. Valhalla, like if I remember there, shoot, dude, that would be tough. It'd be a tough grind every day, hacking out a three or four inch rough. Um, you know, to try to scramble out of a par. I mean, shoot, all our handicaps would be 12. Yeah, try You'd be a good, be good money partner going anywhere else. You'd be like, I'll take yeah. that guy's a 12 all day. No, I'm, yeah, no it's doubt. interesting. I think there's a spot for all of it, but I think, like you said, the, you know, the resort golf courses that they're building at Bandon, like Bandon's playable. I haven't played Bandon, but I've heard Bandon's playable. And then, you know, that's it's, a good uh, thing. Sand Valley is playable. Hard. <laughs> Bandon's hard, man. Pacific Dunes, it was rolling. The wind was like 35 or 40 miles an hour the day we played. And man, it was it was kicking everybody's ass. I mean, we had probably thirteen or fourteen guys in our you know all together. I, I forgot how many groups we had, but I mean, I, I think the guy we had one plus four handicapper, and he shot like seventy seven because the wind was so high. It was it was pretty nuts. Well, I got a couple more for you here. We're going to hit the last two from the music side, and we'll get you Love out of it. here. Um, all right. A band from today or the past. The band could be broken up, but if you could play a show with them and like do some vocals, play lead guitar, you get to play with this band. Like, what would be your one band that you would love to sit in for a show with and just play all night and jam with them? Oh, the Beatles. I mean, dude, I would just love to sit and strum an acoustic guitar and watch the Beatles play. And the thing about the Beatles I think would be really neat because, you know, they quit doing concerts in, like, what, 65, 66 maybe? Um so it'd be just hanging in the studio. You know, I would love to sit in the studio and record with John Paul Ringo and George. I mean, any point in any of their career, man, just sit down and go, hey, let's run down Abbey Road front to back. Let's run down Revolver front to back. And I just want to play with you guys and watch John do his thing or watch Paul sing Hey Jude. Like that to me would be probably the coolest thing ever in the studio like that. As far as live, I won't get up with ACDC. <laughs> there's no, there's rock, they're rock and roll, man. Get up there and just play rock and roll, crank it up to 15 on a 10 amp, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and just watch 30 or 40,000 people go absolutely bananas. Yeah, you could just sit and like play uh, the Malcolm rhythm section and just kind of sit back there and take it all in, right? I mean, that how much fun, fun would that be? That'd be yeah. a blast, man. Yeah, just play the chords and just sit back and do some backup vocals and watch, uh, Watch those two do their thing up front. Ryan and Angus, that would... I'd be fine with that, man. I really would be. Yeah, just take it all in for one show. You know, you got to maybe sing one with Brian up front or something like that, or take one solo, but, yeah, that'd be kind of a cool experience to sit back there and watch it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I saw them once. I hope they tour again. My son really likes ACDC, my 10-year-old, so I'm hoping once all this clears up with the guys that that new album out, I think that might be the first concert I'll take my son to. That'd be That's a pretty, a good, pretty one. good one, man. Pretty good yeah. one to do. Yeah, I agree. All right, final, final. You are playing stadiums, and now you are writing the writer for what you want backstage. So is there one certain thing, once you are playing these massive stadium tours, you are putting on that writer that you want for yourself when uh, when you're headlining this thing? 
You know, the beauty of doing what I do is it's super simple, man. I want a double gym beam on the rocks, lots of ice every single time. And you know, the beauty of gym beam, you can get it in the smallest bar. You can get it in the biggest arena, the biggest stadium. So I'll take a double gym beam white, black if it's a good night, and we'll roll on. That's simple. I love it, right? Let's do this. Give me a, what was like the Johnny Cash thing was kind of like that, right? Like his writer was like four sentences or something. Yeah. You'd like a d- yeah. dressing room and a, I mean, right? It was like the coolest Johnny Cash thing ever where it's like, I need this. Let's do it. Yeah, man. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's catering. And I'll say I've had some of the best food around the country at catering. You know, you go to some of these places, you're like, oh my God, that, that barbecue's slamming. Or, you know, you go somewhere and it's like they do lobster rolls or something. Holy shit, man. I wish I could eat this good at home all the time. But, yeah, I'm super simple. I mean, for me, a pre-show thing is I usually don't eat before a show most of the time unless it's three or four hours before. So if you got an 8 o'clock show, I might grab a little something at 4, maybe 5. And then usually just hang, and, and, and I like to, you know, I listen to a lot of music. I'll kind of crank up some music and maybe, you know, take a shower, hang out, and pour a big gym beam, and sit there and hang out with my buddies and talk and hang out and, and just kind of chill. And then when they say, Hey, it's a uh, five minutes till showtime. I put my, put my, my in-ears in and, and walk to the front and here we go. Love it. Well, I can't wait to, to all this is over. Go see a, go see a live, hang out a little bit. I'll have a gym beam with you backstage. Love um, it. But, but thanks for coming on, man. The new music is great. Um, I, I, like I said, blew me away of how good it was. So I'm so, so happy for you of, you know, the stuff that you're doing, I think it's going to do really, really well. And appreciate your friendship, and thanks for coming on for this. And, uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll uh, talk again in the future. We'll uh, we'll keep everyone kind of in the uh, the loop with any new stuff that's going on. And like I said, when you get out there with Daily, we got to get a field report. So thanks for doing this, my man. Hey, no problem, man. And just to let everybody know, um, I will be – or I'm on a, all social media as far as Instagram. It's at Kenton Bryant, K-E-N-T-O-N-B-R-Y-A-N-T. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. And uh, you can find my music on Apple Music and Spotify and Amazon, everything. Um, if you don't mind, share the songs, and I uh, hope you guys dig it. And if I'm coming through and playing your, your city, your town, or wherever, uh, hit me up, and we will definitely play some golf because that's what I love to do. I love it, my man. Keep doing the good work. All right, dude. Thank you so much. Anytime.
Every waking best buddies You're gonna forget you had Me and Whiskey go way back Like a swing on a porch Rusty old spring on your mama's screen door Like George Jones in a white leather seat Sitting in a cab 